Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. In November 2017, Nigel Bigger, Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology at Oxford, wrote an article for The Times in which he defended Bruce Gilley, a professor of political science at Portland State, for writing an essay calling for a reappraisal of the West's colonial past. Gilley's essay, originally published in Third World Quarterly, resulted in both him and the journal's editorial board being targeted by an academic outrage mob. The editor was threatened with violence, 15 members of the board resigned, and eventually Third World Quarterly withdrew the essay. Nigel Bigger's op-ed in The Times provoked a similar controversy in the UK, not just because he'd had the temerity to defend Professor Gilly, but because he's also leading a five-year project called Ethics and Empire. Priya Gopal, a lecturer at Churchill College, Cambridge, said Bigger's piece amounted to, quote, outright racist imperial apologetics, unquote, and she was one of 170 or so academics to sign an open letter to Oxford attacking Professor Bigger and his project. Thankfully, Oxford University and Christchurch College have not capitulated to the mob. Bigger is also the canon of Christchurch Cathedral, and the Ethics and Empire project has not been defunded. Last week, he organised a conference on academic freedom at Oxford that was attended by many other academics who'd been mobbed for challenging social justice orthodoxy, including Amy Wax, Brett Weinstein, Heather Haying, Noah Carl, and Bruce Gilley. I attended the conference and spoke to Professor Bigger afterwards in his lodgings at Christchurch. So, Nigel, tell me about the conference you've just organised. Well, we we invited um, about 50 people uh, to discuss um, the issue of um, academic freedom under threat and, and in particular to talk about what, uh, what is to be done about it, because uh, what I didn't want to do is to, to gather um, a group of, of, of aggrieved, victimised conservatives together to, to moan, because we, we, we can all do that, um, but that's really not constructive, it's not the adult thing to do. So I wanted us to, to gather together, by all means to, to draw from our experience and to tell our stories, but to analyse what the different problems are in terms of, of a threat to freedom of speech, and, and then to think constructively about, about what we should do about them. Um, uh, so we had, we had speakers drawn uh, from the UK, uh, from South Africa, uh, from the States and from Canada. Um, and, and therefore we, we managed to get uh, an international perspective on, on the different kinds of problems. So we'll talk about um, some of the possible solutions that were discussed in a moment. But do you briefly want to tell me about your own experience? Of being mobbed. Yes. Okay. So um, there was I in in uh, Heathrow Airport in early December 2017 with my wife, about to go off and celebrate our wedding anniversary in Nuremberg, and I, I decided to check my email just one last time, as one does, 
and uh, that's when the news broke to me that a bunch of students had uh, um, published an online denunciation of a project I'd launched um, the previous July on ethics and empire. Um, and uh, um, the good news is that the university administration from the beginning supported me in that, uh, supported my right to, to run such a project. Um, but the bad news is that um, two of my historian colleagues resigned, one of them very abruptly. And for about a month I was um, uh, in, the, in the press and, and having to justify a project that is not designed to defend empire. Uh, I myself think that empire can be defended morally. I, I'm an ethicist, I'm not an historian. My first degree was in history, but I'm a professional ethicist. I think empire can be de defended, and I think, uh, as for the British Empire, there are things that uh, we Brits should be proud of as well as, as, well as ashamed of. But the, the project is, is designed to look at the uh, um, evaluations of empire from ancient China to the modern period, and just to consider the ethical terms in which different peoples at different times have thought about empire. But most of my critics seem to think that the project is all about justifying empire, um, which is not. But then one thing I discovered about my critics is that they don't listen much. And why did it take them that amount of time to become alerted to your project? Uh, uh, first of all, uh, I published an article in the Times in late November um, arguing uh, uh, in favour of, of the, the, the idea that British Empire is something, as I've said, uh, for which Britons have reason to be proud as well as ashamed. But then a few days later I finally got around to posting online a description of the Ethics and Empire project, which, as I said, be began the previous July. And I think the combination of those two things alerted some students to my wickedness. And it was only three days later the first online denunciation went up. And that was then followed within a week by two more online denunciations, one by uh, 58 Oxford colleagues here at Oxford, where I teach, uh, and then uh, a couple of days later by about 200 academics worldwide. Um, and, and particularly the last letter was clearly designed to have this university uh, terminate my project because the letter was not addressed to me, it was addressed to my university, and it was um, uh, clearly concerned about the support given by the university to the project. So it was, it was a repressive letter. And were you surprised to find some of your colleagues' names amongst the signatories? Well, clearly I, I was, uh, in retrospect, I, I was utterly naive. Uh, I hadn't expected any row at all, I'd not experienced it before, and I was uh, shocked at the aggressive, um, intemperate nature of the criticism, and yes, I was, I was frankly unnerved that 58 colleagues should have um, ganged up to make a public, a very public denunciation. Uh, I, I didn't know many of the people who signed the letter, but I knew one who lives, whose office is just across the road from my own. And you would have thought that the, the, uh, if colleagues really had objected to what I was doing, the first you know, humanly responsible thing to do would be knock on my door and say, hey, what are you doing? Here's why we're upset. Let's talk about it. But no, uh, they prefer to launch uh, an alienating, aggressive, very public denunciation. Uh, so that was a shock. And I was, um, particularly when my, my senior historian collaborator abruptly resigned four days after the row broke, uh, I did wonder to myself, my goodness, uh, am I daft? Uh, is, is, is this project really as, as um, 
discreditable, as my credit critics say. But then over time, um, you know, I, I observe, for example, that, oh, it's only 58 colleagues who have complained about my project. There are, in fact, in the uh, faculty, in, in, in the arts and humanities and the social sciences in Oxford, there are 1,600 colleagues. So 58 out of 1,600 is not huge. Um, and then most of the um, complainants, most of the people objecting to my project here, they weren't historians, they were colleague in music, colleague in, colleagues in English lit. Most of them weren't senior, most of them were junior colleagues, and to my knowledge not one of them was an ethicist. And I do emphasise the project I'm conducting is an ethical project, the title is Ethics and Empire. I'm a professional ethicist, um, but it seems to escape my, it seems to have escaped my critics um, that actually they're not ethicists and they're not really competent to judge what I'm doing, but that didn't stop them. Do you have any insight in what happened to you um, in virtue of being an ethicist? Were you effectively, were a group of people trying to expel you from a moral community as a way of, I don't know, establishing greater cohesion and a sense of belonging to their group? Well, that's, that's an interesting interpretation, Toby. I mean, certainly uh, I did notice clearly uh, their motivation was 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 moral they, they 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 have deep they have deep assumptions about what's just and in their view for anyone to stand up and say that any empire in the history of the world uh, could ever have been morally justified is is clearly unthinkable for them although at one point in one of their uh, in the oxford denunciation they said uh, uh, rather haughtily that you know, we historians we don't deal in good and evil you know we're above that we're scientists uh, but but the the whole of their critique was riven with was rife with um, uh, moral indignation. But of course, being historians or being uh, people trained in English lit, the, the, they didn't have the self awareness and the the critical apparatus uh, to be aware of of their moral assumptions and and how questionable they are. Whereas I, as a trained ethicist, that's my job. Um, so there, there was a strange disjunction between their moral passion and their pretence to being scientifically neutral. Yes, I mean the, the, one of the, um, the the chief instigators of the the third um, online denunciation, the one that uh, was signed by about two hundred colleagues worldwide. Uh, this was um, Dr. Priya Gopal at Churchill College, Cambridge. This whole um, uh, campaign began, uh, I think, with a, with a tweet she sent out in, in the middle of December, and I, I have it on record. Um, where in, in response to, to my project, she tweets, Oh my God, this is serious shit. We must shut this down. The last three words being in capital letters. And what in, in retrospect occurred to me is that that email displays a deep degree of anxiety. This is serious shit. So here am I, um, um, a moral theologian, an ethicist, and my historian colleague wanting to uh, explore the ways in which people have evaluated empire from ancient China to the modern period. And this is a serious threat, really? On the one hand, there was the, the appearance of, of power, you know, 58 and then 200 colleagues worth, uh, worldwide ganging up against me, which was unnerving. Um, but underneath, I detected a deep anxiety that I really was a major threat to them. But, but one of the things I've, I've learned, Toby, through this... Um, this row is is the discrepancy between appearance and reality, and and how uh, these these mobs 
which spring up suddenly and, and are unnerving, appear to have a predominance and an authority that on further reflection they just don't have. So oddly, through all this, this trial, uh, I've emerged 18 months later a hell of a lot more confident in what I'm doing, and I've looked at what the opposition has to say, I've looked at their behaviour, and I'm deeply unimpressed. Um, and what's more, you know, the, the, the project which, which did suffer damage, as I said, two historian colleagues uh, resigned. Uh, the good news is we now have uh, four new historians who've uh, signed up, and, and whereas before we only had two white Anglo-Saxon historians, we now have, uh, own, we have uh, four historians, one of which is Anglo-Saxon white, the other three are, uh, there are two British Indians and one British Iranian. So the other thing I learned was that, that uh, the, the, the grandchildren or the, or the uh, children of the subjects of empire uh, don't all think the same thing. Many of them agree with me, not with my critics. One of the discussion points in the conference was, should we respond in kind yeah. when we're attacked in this manner? Yeah. Or should we try and be more gentlemanly and conduct ourselves properly in a way we would want them to conduct themselves. Yes. Did you struggle with that yourself? Were you at any point tempted to respond in kind? I know you're due to review Dr. Gopal's book for the time. Were you able to resist the impulse to avenge yourself? Yeah, well, I certainly got very very upset and very angry uh, because I'm not a politician. I'm I'm not used to being misrepresented every day. Uh, And I, I live in a world where I thought... You know, the basic norms are that uh, in, in the academic world and certainly in a, in a place with uh, a reputation like Oxford or Cambridge that you and I may disagree fiercely over something, but there are certain norms we, we abide by. We, we abide by the rules of reason and of logic and we don't in, indulge in, in uh, misrepresentation and sleights of hand and provocative, gratuitous insult. Uh, so I, I was completely taken aback by that and, and I, I lost several nights sleep, partly what, partly being hurt by what was said, but also trying to figure out how, how do you respond to this in a responsible, rational fashion. And I, I tried initially, because um, I, I wrote three responses. And you've tried to engage individually with some of these signatories. I did, I did. And I, uh, uh, what I found was that um, they weren't interested in what I had to say. And because it's only worth engaging with someone uh, who, when you say something, they take what you say, and they tell you, well, I agree with that, but I do agree with, with the other, and here's why I don't agree with you. Then you can have a kind of a progressive conversation, and you, you, you learn, and you, uh, uh, you, you give reasons, and you, and you take them, and you yield where you have to, and you stand where you feel you ought to. That's fine. But um, here, you got a, here I, I had a, a bunch of critics um, who, when I responded, made no comment whatsoever. Generally, um, Oxford has behaved well when faced with these sorts of tests. Yes. Cambridge, less well. Yes. You wrote about um, the decision by the Divinity Faculty of Cambridge to first invite and then disinvite Jordan Peterson to give a series of lectures this autumn. Um, Why is it, do you think, that Cambridge is proving less robust than Oxford? That's a very good question, and I wish I knew a thorough answer to it. so what I say is, is informed speculation. I, I think, as you'll know, the quality of leadership at the top does really shape 
the quality of the institution. And it so happens that we now have uh, a Vice-Chancellor in Louise Richardson, who from the beginning, from way back from the Rosemus Fall campaign in late 2015, made quite clear uh, that this university is committed to freedom of speech. And, and our Chancellor, Chris Patton, uh, did the same thing. I don't know Stephen Toop, who's the VC of Cambridge, um, but he's, he's clearly a different kind of man. And uh, it may well be that Cambridge has behaved the way it has, partly, not only, but partly because of the, the quality of the man, in this case, at the top. But um, the other thing is that although Oxford University has been reassuringly robust at the top, so when my particular row broke, as I said, the university at the beginning was, was um, on the front foot in defending my right to do uh, what I had chosen to, to do in terms of the Ethics and Empire project. That's great, and that's really important, but it doesn't stop um, middle managers further down making poor decisions. It doesn't stop political criteria for, from being applied in making appointments or admissions. And uh, I certainly know, uh, I, I first-hand testimony from one graduate student uh, who applied to um, enter a program in our Faculty of History, who was told explicitly by the, um, the professor, the Don, interviewing him that his political views were not welcome. I know that. Now, I haven't tested the testimony, but I have no reason to suppose that I was lied to. Um, so the point here is that uh, declarations of support for academic freedom at the top are really important, but they're not enough, because there, there are subtle forms of illegitimate discrimination, pressure, intimidation further down. And my sense is, at Cambridge, the, the origin of the mishandling of the Jordan Peterson case lay in the Divinity School. Uh, because they were the ones who issued the invitation, they were the ones who attracted it. And it wasn't until, until a week later that Stephen Toop, the VC, actually made his statement. Um, so I suspect it, it was middle management that made the mistakes. And the, the truth is, uh, so certainly in this university and in Cambridge, our, our faculties are run by academics, and we, we like to keep academic control of, of these, these um, departments of the university. Which is all well and fine, because there's some hope, therefore, that, that the, the principles by which faculties will be governed will be academic principles, not, let's say, business principles. That's fine. But academics are not trained administrators. They're not, they're not trained in handling the media. And uh, they're not trained, really, to, to, um, to exercise the diplomatic and political skills you need to exercise to run an institution. They're amateurs. So it's not entirely surprising that uh, um, some colleagues who find themselves in charge of faculty make really stupid mistakes. Uh, but what's dispiriting is, I mean, I've, I, 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 as you know, I published an article um, dissecting exactly why Cambridge's rescinding of its offer of a fellowship to Jordan Peterson was unjustified. And I, I ended the article saying, I, I regret saying this because when I talk about Cambridge, I'm talking about friends and colleagues. So I, I, I have no animus, I have no axe to grind against Cambridge. But what's dispiriting is, I go to the trouble to, to explain why their reasoning was inadequate, 
um, why their, their behavior was unjustified. And what's the response? Nothing. Silence. And now, you know, I understand. I called them out in public. For them to admit fault in public is embarrassing. But if you're, you know, if, if you're, if you have moral integrity, then you ought to have the strength to admit fault and row back. That would, that would be real leadership. But we don't see real leaders often in these positions. We see people who are by nature managers in the sense that all they really care about is taking the path of least resistance and trying to avoid as much fuss as possible. And they reckon that if they just keep quiet, eventually the storm will blow over, which is perhaps uh, canny. It's not very brave. Cambridge's decision to investigate its own history of involvement with the slave trade. Yes. Do you think that is part of the same general pattern and that they were, in effect, giving into pressure from the same kinds of academics that pressured the divinity faculty to rescind its invitation to Jordan Peterson? Or is that a more innocent... No, I think it's, it is related... One of the characteristics of the current mood, certainly among some students, and I, I don't think that it's a majority actually, some students and some dons, but it, 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 it's a prevailing mood. Um, th- there is a, um, a strong tendency to regard the West as the primary source of the, of the world's woes. And, and in the case of Peterson, you know, Peterson is white, he's male, he's Canadian, and he's got slightly conservative... He's got conservative social views, and so he's, he's suspect. So what's, what, what's white and male and Western and, and conservative is, is suspect. Um, and, and, and he gets no benefit of doubt, whereas Dr. Gopal, who is not white, not male, uh, not conservative, uh, doesn't matter what kind of uh, vile abuse she spits out on Twitter uh, in contravention of uh, Cambridge's uh, published social media guidelines, doesn't matter what she d- does, she doesn't get any reprimand, but Peterson gets disinvited. So there is a, I think, frankly, uh, I think uh, there is evidence that um, in these cases, Cambridge has displayed a strong political bias. It has discriminated on political grounds. Now, the connection between that and, and, and the slavery issue is, of course, slavery is, is probably the great sin uh, of the West, and particularly the great sin of the British Empire, because we, we tolerated it for uh, 200 years. And so um, that's the connection, I think, between the, 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 the two cases. And, and, and it's notable, of course, that there's no interest in the fact that, that um, um, Arab empires presided over slavery for a millennium. No interest in that at all. It, it's, it's Western slavery that's, that's in, the, in the frame. It could, could a possible connection be that part of what drove the campaign to uh, defenestrate Jordan Peterson was the disgust instinct. And the claim was that because he had stood next to someone, albeit briefly, yes. wearing a T-shirt proclaiming yes. that he was a proud Islamophobe, that yes. he was contaminated by his proximity to yes. this toxic person. And that if he'd been allowed to come to Cambridge as a member of the Divinity Faculty, as a visiting fellow, he would contaminate Cambridge. Similarly, 
what they want to do is investigate the extent to which Cambridge has been contaminated by its involvement with the slave trade and do something to then expiate its guilt and atone for that sin as a kind of way of yeah. expelling what it is that's disgusting them. That, that, well, I think um, that's a really astute way of putting it. And I, I, you're quite right to um, try and understand what's been going on really at, at a kind of visceral level. I mean, I, I, I tend to think, I tend to be, to be rational, uh, but a lot of this is quite visceral. And on the one hand, and I, I say to my students, it's really important to care about things. I'm an ethicist, and I believe there really are values, and I, I think there are, there, there are things that are right and wrong, uh, and it's important to be personally invested in these things. Um, academic studies is, is, shouldn't be a, a kind of white-coat clinical scientific hobby, at least not in the arts and sciences. Um, we are dealing with things that are really important for human existence, human flourishing, so passion should be involved. Uh, I don't believe that, that, that academic study in the arts and humanities, or even the social sciences, should pretend to be disinterested. So, you know, I approve of, of passion and engagement and personal engagement, but we all know that passions are dangerous. Uh, we, we're all tempted to, to let anger and hatred and disgust just run away with ourselves. Um, and it can be enormously, enormously destructive and lead to all sorts of conflict. And surely in universities, um, we have to teach our students that when you come across a point of view that scares you, or that revolts you, or that unnerves you, or that makes you feel uncomfortable, uh, it is not enough to react viscerally, you have to react rationally. Uh, by all means, connect your passions to your reasons, but you've got to allow your passions to be governed by reasons. Um, otherwise, I mean, if we don't do that, then it seems to me that universities are completely failing in their vocation. So uh, I understand uh, people who might react to, to uh, Peterson's standing next to someone wearing a, a, a T-shirt with I'm a proud Islamophobe written over it uh, with, with uh, disgust. Uh, but they have to control their disgust and ask certain questions, like, uh, does the fact that Jordan Peterson has his arm around this man mean that Jordan Peterson endorses the message on the T-shirt? Well, in order to answer that question, you would ask, what's, what's the context? Has Jordan Peterson, for example, just finished addressing uh, the, the New Zealand Society of Muslim Haters? No. Uh, uh, um, is, this, is this fellow wearing the T-shirt, is he one, one of 30,000 fans um, next to whom Jordan Peterson has been photographed in the past number of years? Yes. Can we therefore infer from this approximation that Jordan Peterson endorses Islamophobia? No. Now, my question is, why didn't anyone in Cambridge ask those questions? Because they didn't. Uh, that was a major failure in Cambridge's raison d'etre as a, uh, an institution called to foster rationality. Do you think that they, that Jordan Peterson's opponents allowed themselves to be um, dictated to by their disgust uh, was in part, or is in part, because they don't believe that reason can provide you with kind of overall moral guidance. Um, they 
they're sceptical yeah. about the values of the Enlightenment more generally. Yeah. Um, and don't think that reason, rationality, logic, or at least they're selective about it. But deep yeah. down, if pressed, they take a kind of very sceptical view. I think all, we're, we're, it's all about power. Yes. And it's perfectly yes. appropriate for us yes. to respond in this way and try and conjure up these feelings in other people because it will, it will advance our cause yes. and hinder our opponent's cause. Yes. Um, just before I get on to that, it just occurred to me that um, this worry about contagion mm -hmm. um, also betrays an anxiety, doesn't it? That if we allow this person among us, we, we're going to become infected. Mm -hmm. we, we, we can't resist it. So again, the, 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 the theme of anxiety and insecurity comes up again. So my view is, um, a, 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 any kind of robust liberal would say, um, um, Jordan Peterson uh, may well have views that we don't like and we think are dangerous, and, um, but are, are we not capable of resisting them rationally? Uh, so so there, there is that strange lack of self-confidence. Mm. Um, and often it's, um, it's, it's the way that anxiety is expressed is a concern for other more vulnerable people than themselves. Yes. So they appoint themselves the custodians yes. of the uh, mental well-being and moral welfare yes. of vulnerable groups yes. uh, who, if exposed to Jordan Peterson's ideas... Um, may become distressed or anxious. It may inhibit them about contributing yeah. to public debate. Yeah. Um, but actually, the survey evidence is that minorities are incredibly every bit as robust and able to cope with challenge and conflict of as of course. Various, their various white, guilty, liberal yeah, protectors. Yes, and at serious universities like Oxford and Cambridge, I mean, if we don't teach kids how to, to handle uh, points of view they, that, that worry them or make them anxious, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Christian. In, in, my, in my career, I've read all sorts of things written by atheists that, that shake me to the existential core. Now, uh, should I have been protected from that? Of course not. So, so you know, somehow... Contemporary professors in Oxford and Cambridge need, need to behave like adults and expect their, their students to become like adults, where we, we have to confront uh, in the world things that really upset us, and we have, to, we have to train people in a responsible, rational way of responding to those things. Otherwise, um, we're going to produce a, a society full of, well, well, full of citizens with university degrees who just don't know how to handle political conflict other than emotionally and through the manipulation of power. And you know, that's, that's two steps away from violence. But uh, going back to your, your thing about, about um, there actually being an emotional one, um, lacking confidence in being able to give reasons for a moral point of view, mm -hmm. I think that that is something to do with it. Um, but the, the, so on the one hand, we, 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 as a culture, we're in a kind of strange messed up place, because on the one hand, I think there are, there are views that, um, that there is no overarching moral reality, that um, uh, everyone, that the morality is private, everyone gets to make up their own morality or identity or whatever, uh, and therefore it's as if 
uh, we can't communicate about anything moral because we live in entirely private worlds. And so that's one reason why we appeal to the law, because the law is one thing that we have in common. And in a sense, we don't have to take responsibility for it because uh, the police and the courts will do it for us, although, of course, the police and the courts can't cope with all the amount of conflict and wrongdoing we, we produce. Uh, but we kind of outsourced the kind of moral uh, discipline of our society to, to someone else. Um, so that's on the one. On the other hand, clearly uh, the, the people who wanted to get rid of Jordan Peterson, or clearly the people who ganged up against me and my project, were driven by profound moral passion. Mm. It's just that they don't have, they don't seem to, to have the, the equipment to articulate what, morally, what is it that they, they, they value, and they certainly can't cope with criticism of it, because they, they've not been taught that. Mm. So we have strange contradictory forces here. Yeah, it's, it's um, I mean, one of the most striking paradoxes of the social justice left is that, as you say, um, one, of, one of the things that they all seem to believe is that there is no basis for moral judgments. Uh, they all seem to be um, moral relativists. Yes. And, to, and, the, and, and, and they'll, they'll die in a ditch to defend yes. moral relativism. Yes. And yet they're also moral absolutists of the most fanatical kind. That's right. And it's not that they've just decided to ignore their relativism. Their absolutism, in some peculiar and mysterious way, seems to be absolutely rooted in their relativism. Yeah, that's, it. that's, that's a real, that's really right, Toby. I can't think how those two things are coherent. Uh, 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 there certainly seems to be, a, to be a remarkable degree of lack of self-awareness. Yes. Um, so so my, my story and my, my, my Oxford critics, in what they, they wrote about my Ethics and Empire project, uh, on the one hand, as I said, sort of said, you know, Theologians can deal with good and evil, but we're, we're superior to that. We are, we're historians. On the other hand, the whole of what they said was riven with certain moral prejudices, and they didn't know it. Yes. That's the odd thing. I think an analogy would be it's as though they're members of a cult whose defining characteristic is that they think everyone outside the cult is a member of the cult. So everyone yes. is a member of a cult apart from them, yes. and that is the defining characteristic yes. of their cult. Yes. But they're, they're not realising that they're in a cult, and their conviction that everybody else yes. is seems to be part of yes. what gives it its power over them. That's right. And, and you, you use the word cult is, is appropriate because several people have noticed there's a kind of religious quality, and religious in the sense of a kind of absolute self-certainty, an absolute self-righteousness, and and uh, they believe in evil, but e evil is elsewhere. Evil is in me, or it's in you, not in them. So uh, I'm religious, as I've said. So this is a kind of religious pathology where it seems to me that um, if you think in terms of our biblical tradition, the heritage of the West, that, that, that they've got, that they, that they, they, they've um, latched on to um, the strong stream of concern for justice that you will find in the Old Testament, the prophets or whatever. So they're big on social justice, but they have no sense of sin. That's to say, the idea that they themselves could be riven with ill, bad motives or that there are any moral that they might actually transgress morally in the defense of what they regard as being, as being valuable. So there's an absoluteness to their own self-certainty and a terrifying 
lack of uh, self-critical awareness. Well, they, 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 I guess, would respond by saying, oh, hang on a second, um, we locate sinfulness in whiteness yeah. and in racism and the West. Yes. So if we renounce our own whiteness, our masculinity, yes. if we acknowledge our racism and yes. denounce it, then that's their way of being self-critical and self-aware. But there is always something yes. rather insincere about that uh, self-flagellation. It feels ritualistic yes. rather than sincerely felt. No, I think, I think you're right. So I, I have to qualify what I said. That's, that's right. There, there's an element of self-purging there. Um, uh, but since, since, since I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm white, but I, I don't feel the need to do that. So the question is, why do they feel the need to why do they feel the need to do that? It's uh, oddly a very impersonal kind of sin, isn't it? They're not, they're not saying, I no. have sinned. No. They're saying, in virtue of being a member of this particular identity group, uh, I'm a sinner. So it doesn't cost them very much to okay, acknowledge so, that okay. sin. So th th this is an easy self-purging. Yes, because they're, they're, they're not personally responsible. No. Uh, um, and in fact, by, by distancing themselves from the evil West, uh, they, they, they purify themselves. So they are pure, in fact. Uh, it is quite complicated, isn't it? I think, I think you're absolutely right about um, the cult having um, certain things in common with Christianity. Um, but one of the things it hasn't, one of the things it's forgotten to take from Christianity is the ability to forgive other oh, sinners. Heaven's above, yes. um, the, 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 there's no, there doesn't seem to be any mechanism in the social justice church for, <laughs> no, no. Um, for, for uh, allowing people who've been identified, like you for instance, yes. like me, as sinners to uh, expiate that sin, to atone for it and to be readmitted into the moral community once yes. cleansed. Once, once, you're, once you've been expelled, that's it. There's no yes. way back. Yes. And that, that feels quite dangerous. It feels terrifying. Well, it, it, I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking of the, red, the, the student red guard in, in China during the Cultural Revolution. Absolutely. Uh, I've just read The Cowshed, which is uh, a first-person account by a Chinese professor about oh. being targeted yeah. during the Cultural Revolution and having to go through struggle session after struggle session. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, uh, I'm just wondering, uh, um, uh, in the current case, would not full, unqualified public recantation and confession save you, or would this no. would they still damn you? Um, well, I think in almost every case, um, when people have responded to mobbings of this nature yeah. by apologising and pleading for forgiveness, that has simply emboldened the mob. Yes. The mob's bloodlust then increases, and they want to rip the person limb from limb. Yeah. Um, so it um, really is merciless. It's merciless. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. So yeah, yes. I mean, I, I uh, um, um, uh, the, the idea that I might be mistaken is a perfectly familiar one, and I frequently have been. <laughs> uh, it doesn't bother me at all. So I, I do find that their, on the surface, their self certainty uh, uh, quite uh, odd, completely implausible, uh, and possibly quite brittle. Because as I said, underneath there's this hint of anxiety. Mm. And, and the force, the, the exaggerated aggression, uh, is an overreaction. So the, these are people, in a sense, who are not entirely in control, and that they're actually very nervous. Um, so again, the, the illusion of power, um, uh, or the, the appearance of power, does appear to me to be 
more of an illusion. Um, but the, uh, you're quite right. The, there is a there is a certain pathologically religious quality to their behaviour, um, and it seems as if no amount of reasoning or citation of facts has much impact on them. Which is why I think I, I don't know what to do to save their souls, um, except when necessary, uh, just keep telling the truth to them, and maybe the penny will drop eventually. Um, more important is is for people like me. To, to address ourselves to, to the wider public um, who may not know which side they belong to but are usually horrified by the behaviour of, of some of our academic colleagues. So let's talk about some of the solutions um, discussed at the conference. One of the things we discussed was the possibility of creating something like the National Association of Scholars, which Bruce Gilley, who was at the conference, yes. um, is a member of and said had been very helpful when yes. he found himself being targeted by a mob for very similar reasons yes. to you. Um, uh, and there were some people at the conference, um, like Noah Carl, lost their jobs as a yes. result of being mobbed. But the idea of creating something like a trade union for heterodox academics... Yes that could protect people and provide yes. them with support, yes. employment advice, legal yeah. advice and so forth, yes. if they find themselves being yes. targeted in this way. Yes. Um, that, seemed to, that, seemed to be, that seemed to strike a chord with a lot of people in the room. Yes, I, I think you know, we did talk a lot about the importance of, of individuals standing up and standing out, um, and sometimes that gathers, it gives courage to other people who then begin to voice their own uh, repressed views. So individual action is important, but uh, as we uh, uh, as we heard, and you've mentioned Noah Carl and uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying, sometimes when individuals stand up and stand out, they get crushed. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so we need institutions to support um, to support a genuine, uh, uh, robustly liberal um, space. Uh, and so, something like um, a, a national association of, of scholars that provides. Uh, legal support for colleagues who find themselves um, under uh, pressure from, from their own institutions would be a, a really good idea. I mean, I've no idea how to set it up, but uh, we, can, we can easily um, uh, get guidance from, uh, from our colleagues in North America. So that would, that would be a really good, positive, constructive institutional response. I mean, the, the other um, uh, prominent um, um, constructive response... Uh, to the problem, well, it's, it's kind of aggressively constructive response, is uh, the need to, to raise the costs mm -hmm. to universities that, that fail uh, to defend freedom of speech. Uh, and one of the costs that universities care about is adverse publicity. Mm -hmm. And uh, both Cambridge and Oxford and other universities in this country have, have got uh, a lot of negative publicity in, in the press. Uh, allied to that is um, the behaviour of uh, would-be benefactors or alumni. And in the uh, Times, I think two days ago, there was a letter from uh, a Cambridge alumnus announcing that uh, because of Cambridge's actions uh, with regard to the inquiry into slavery and to its connection with slavery, that he would no longer be making a bequest to the university. I got a letter today uh, um, from an, uh, from an alumnus of Trinity College, Oxford, saying the same thing. So, uh, and the, the the fellows of Oriel, um, uh, their mind was changed in 2016 over removing a plaque to Rhodes uh, after 
um, uh, alumni started uh, shouting and screaming and benefactions started to dry up. Uh, so, so those costs will concentrate the minds of, of administrators. Funnily enough, I, I, I suggested this. Let's, um, instead of decolonizing the curriculum, let's defund the wreckers of the curriculum. Um, <laughs> and uh, Amy Wax, um, who was at the conference and who was mobbed pretty energetically for an article she co-authored about bourgeois virtues. She had a pretty bad experience at Penn Law. Um, and she said, no, that won't work. And I asked her privately why she thought that wouldn't work. And she said, uh, for three reasons. First of all, in America anyway, deep-pocketed donors, usually rich white men, um, uh, are making the donation in order to enhance their child or their nephew or yes. their grandchild's yes. chances of getting in. Yes. Um, so you're not going to put them off if they think there's yes. a free speech problem. Yes. Uh, secondly, she said, increasingly rich white men are themselves now woke or want to signal that yes. they're woke for status signaling and other reasons. Yes. And she said, and even if they aren't woke and have some sympathy for the cause you're trying to enlist them in, yeah. thirdly, their wives will be woke and they will withhold sex from them if they get involved in a campaign. There's a powerful weapon. <laughs> a powerful weapon. Yeah. She thought that was doomed to failure. I'm less pessimistic. No, I think in this country, I don't think, um, um, I, don't, I don't think that uh, wealthy people can buy their, their children's way into Oxbridge um, so easily. I also think that um, there are uh, wealthy people around who do care about uh, uh, freedom of speech uh, who would be willing to put money behind um, the defence of, um, of people who found themselves un under, under pressure. I, I also think that in my own case, I mean, this conference we held uh, over the last two days on academic freedom was funded by my research centre, uh, which was uh, um, endowed in perpetuity by an American foundation, the McDonnell Agape Foundation, which gives me, as the director, complete control over how I spend the money. So this conference only happened because I had that independent source of funding at my fingertips. And uh, um, as a lesson for the future, uh, if you want to um, foster centres of dissidence within universities, you need to give um, appropriate scholars um, independent, independent streams of funding so, so they don't have to depend on university committees uh, that might apply um, polit political criteria adversely uh, mm -hmm. if they apply for funding and then deny them. Um, uh, that's also really important. Mm -hmm. Professor Nigel Bigger, thank you very much. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page, that's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.